This is Library Bytegeist, a collection of audio stories from the library's archives and museums of New York City. I'm Molly Schwartz, and this podcast is brought to you by the Metropolitan New York Library Council, where the libraries and archives of New York come together to learn, share ideas, and collaborate. Okay, this is the 11th episode of Library Bytegeist, so I think it's time for me to give you all a little quiz. Let's play a game. It's called What Would a Librarian Do? Okay, ready? Set? Here's the question. You work in a public library. You provide free and open access to the internet. Anyone can come in and use your computers. One day, you're serving your shift at the reference desk. When one of your longtime favorite patrons approaches, it's Mrs. Buravaya. She always comes in on the weekends with her grandson Nikolai and checks out videos of old Cheboroshka cartoons. Who's there? It's Cheboroshka. She's the sweetest old lady. She even gave you a recipe for her borscht one time. But today she isn't coming up to talk to you about soup. She has a complaint to make. She sternly informs you that there's a man watching pornography at one of the public computers and everybody can see the obscenity playing out on his screen, including her little grandson Nikolai. So, you're the librarian. What do you do? I'm going to give you four options. Option A: Confront the man. Inform him that his behavior is against library policy and it's disturbing to the other patrons. Tell him that unless he stops viewing the inappropriate content on public computers, he will be asked to leave. Option B. Inform kind old Mrs. Buravaya that there is nothing you can do. These are public computers and people can use them for any purpose. As a library, you are opposed to censorship of any kind. Mrs. Buravaya and Nikolai can turn their heads and find a space in the library away from this man's computer screen. Option C. Bring the problem up to your library supervisor and suggest implementing an internet filter that will block inappropriate content like porn. And option D. Bring the problem up to your library supervisor and suggest installing privacy screens on all the computers. This way people can view whatever they want without anybody else being able to see their screens. Privacy screens are expensive, but hey, what is the point of libraries if not to provide the necessary tools for unfettered intellectual discovery? Okay, I'll give you a minute. What's the right answer? Hmm? Okay, you caught me. I know this is the lamest game ever. It's a trick question. The answer is it could be any or all of the above. This is a real problem that libraries deal with, and there's no one right answer. It's something that every library needs to make decisions and write policies about based on their specific needs and priorities. The sad truth is that wherever there is free access to resources, there will be people who abuse them. It's known as the tragedy of the commons. The same holds true for internet access. This is something that Rob Kalori has to confront on a daily basis as the director of information technology for the Westchester Library System. It's been challenging because of the way libraries are and that we're a castle of freedom. It's prone to abuse. So people come in and use the Wi-Fi which is completely anonymous, knowing that we don't keep or track anything about them and they've used it for various unintended purposes. There's been a couple of times that these unintended purposes have included illegal activity. We've had law enforcement knock on the door and we apologize and humbly let them know that unfortunately there's not very much we can help them with. We comply where we're required, but in most terms there's nothing for us to provide because we don't keep logs on almost anything. These kinds of cases are inevitable for public libraries, and especially those operating on the scale of the Westchester library system. 
We cover the 38 public libraries in Westchester County. That's 44 total branches. That's almost 1,000 computers and 460,000 library card holders. Each library branch is able to set its own policies and decide how to manage filtering. But Rob is responsible for managing the overall system. The way our network is set up is kind of like a hub and spoke, where we share one internet connection out to the internet. Uh, It's a very wide pipe, but the bigger you get in terms of internet, the more money you can save. That's a lot of potential computers for porn watching. But despite the challenges, Rob really loves his job. Hearing him talk about his library origin story sounds more like a romance than a detective thriller. Libraries found me. It was it was so amazing. I got this call for this random job that I had applied for at Westchester Library System. And after I went for the first interview, I said, this is going to be the best job I've ever had. Ten years later, it's my 10-year anniversary last month, I have never looked back. I go to work every single day super excited for what faces me. I've never had a bad day. I can honestly say I've never had a bad day. And I'm now in library school. I'm a library school student. I'm due to graduate in about a year and a half, two years. And I've completely adopted my newfound home. So how does Rob keep the romance alive and keep enjoying his job without going crazy, making sure that people don't use the 1,000 computers in his libraries to do harmful or illegal things on the internet? This is no easy task. If you remember from our episode three about smart cities, this was a problem that was difficult enough for New York City to figure out that it had to shut off the internet browsing function at its public Wi-Fi kiosks around the city. Let me rewind a little. There's a reason I keep talking about porn. A few months ago, when I was doing research for our privacy episode, I came across this 1986 court case. The story starts in 1981, when Chalmers Wiley, a Republican congressman from Ohio's 15th district, found out that the Library of Congress was spending $102,960 per year to print Playboy magazine in Braille. It had been doing so since 1970, as part of its National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped program. This program translated and distributed important books and magazines in Braille so that blind people could also access them. Playboy was one of only 36 magazines that Library of Congress printed as part of this program. But Congressman Wiley didn't care about the other 35 magazines. He was fixated on Playboy. You see, he wasn't a fan of the magazine. In a debate on the floor of the House, he described it as full of wanton and illicit sex. And he certainly couldn't understand why taxpayer money was going toward printing it when the government was operating at a $200 billion budget deficit. As far as Congressman Wiley was concerned, this was like flushing taxpayer money down the toilet. A very dirty toilet. Congressman Wiley spent the next four years trying to convince the Library of Congress to stop printing Playboy in Braille, but he was unsuccessful. Playboy was one of the most popular magazines in the Braille program, and it had been selected by the library based on specific criteria, like its popularity and cultural significance. Besides, in case you were wondering, the library was only printing the textual articles in Braille. There were obviously no nude images or scantily clad centerfolds in the Braille editions. So, finally, in 1985, Wiley pulled a kind of backdoor maneuver— He sponsored an amendment to reduce the funding for this Library of Congress program by exactly $103,000. Remember how much it had cost the library to print Playboy? Yeah, it was $102,000 and $960,000. The amendment passed in a tight vote. The amendment didn't mention Playboy by name, but the message was clear. Congress didn't want them printing Playboy in Braille, and they were going to cut their budget so that they stopped. The librarian of Congress at the time, Daniel J. Borston, took the hint. Elsie stopped printing Braille Playboys in December of 1985. 
But it wasn't over yet. There were a number of parties who thought that this was censorship in a clear violation of First Amendment rights to freedom of expression. The American Library Association, Playboy, the American Council of the Blind, the Blinded Veterans Association, Blind Readers of Braille magazines, and 41 House members all teamed up and filed a lawsuit against the Librarian of Congress, who didn't even want to stop printing Playboys in the first place. Their main argument was a First Amendment argument, that the government can't discriminate against publications based on the publication's content. Since Congress hadn't mentioned Playboy by name in their amendment, it was the Librarian of Congress who came under fire. In August of 1986, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that the library's decision to stop printing Playboy in Braille was a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution because it was a denial of a subsidy based on Playboy's content. They ordered that printing of the Braille Playboys had to resume, and it did. Since 2001, Playboy has also been made available as a web Braille ebook. This court case caught my attention, not only because it's a pretty entertaining story, but also because it drove home how pornography has often served as a kind of legal battleground to hammer out the boundaries of our First Amendment rights to freedom of speech. At first, I thought that Playboy magazine and the American Library Association made strange bedfellows. Yes, pun intended. But then, after thinking about it for a second, I realized that they weren't. Pornography has come up in many freedom of expression cases. Libraries are a core institution for guaranteeing our rights to freedom of expression. You're supposed to be able to go to the library to research and read about and find information on computers about whatever you like. So where does that leave us today? Things have changed since the 1980s. The internet has made content much more widespread and easy to access. Part of the reasoning behind the judge's ruling in the Braille Playboy case was that Playboy magazine was not considered technically obscene under the Supreme Court's obscenity test. And computer screens are less discreet than magazines. How do libraries deal with people coming to use their public computers to watch things like porn? That's led some libraries to implement internet filters. But this is controversial because some people see that as censorship. Studies came out in the early days of filtering, showing that filters at school and library computers were also blocking sites about topics like safe sex and women's health. I turned to Rob Calori to help me navigate this fine line between filtering and free speech. Given that many librarians and library associations So a pretty hard line on the free speech issue, I kind of expected Rob to be adamantly anti-filter. It turns out he doesn't see the issue as quite so clear-cut. One of the biggest misconceptions is that when you turn on a filter, it's a black and white scenario. That you turn on the filter and then all of a sudden this computer is making decisions about who sees what and it's ultra-restrictive and there's no going back. And that's completely false. There are a number of different kinds of filters. There are those ultra-restrictive filters. I would never recommend any of them for a library. However, there are different filters that are more community-based, where it's not an algorithm making choices about what content is shown and what's not shown. It's community-driven where sites are categorized by human beings. And then once a certain number of people have said, yes, this site is a social media site, or this site is a video sharing site, or this site is a mature audiences only kind of site, and it fits into that category officially, then you can choose on your administrative end of your filter whether or not to block it or not. One of the most important things to remember is that libraries have the ability to choose what's appropriate and not appropriate. In Westchester, there are some libraries that do filter for various reasons, Most of them that filter, filter because they want to make the children's room a more inviting place for children. They don't filter at their adult terminals at all, maybe mildly at their teen stations, but more importantly at their children's stations. 
other libraries, and I do have a couple in Westchester that do participate in the E-rate program independently, they have to filter because of the SEPA requirements, the Children's Internet Protection Act requirements that go along with the E-rate funding program. Ah, yes, SEPA. It's impossible to talk about internet filters in public libraries without getting into SEPA in the E-rate funding program. E-rate is a source of federal funding for public libraries. The E-rate program is funded through the universal service fee. If you look at the bottom of your phone bill, whether it's a landline, a cell phone, or any telecommunications bill, you more than likely see a universal services fee. That money goes to fund the universal services fund which is administered by USAC. It's an administrative arm of the FCC, and its focus is spending the universal service fund on schools and libraries, helping them afford affordable internet and helping them afford the equipment that's used to deliver it. But for libraries to get access to E-rate funding, they have to comply with certain requirements. With that money comes a string. The string is compliance with the SEPA, or Children's Internet Protection Act, which basically states that any school or library that takes the money also has to have an internet protection policy in place that states what's inappropriate and what measures will be taken place to protect minors from being harmed by access to what's deemed inappropriate material. The American Library Association and the ACLU came out strongly against SEPA when it was passed, but the Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that SEPA is constitutional. There was a lot of controversy with regard to SEPA. The American Library Association launched a pretty strong attack. WLS was actually a participating agency in that effort. We were not successful, but libraries are subject now to SEPA. The issue really at the time was that there were no good filters. Filters were algorithmic. What they did was scan content and make a decision on what was seen and what was not seen. Myself included, not a lot of people are all that happy about a computer making a decision about what I'm going to see and not see. Since then, the filtering technology has changed a lot. At the time, those filters that were algorithmic also were more restrictive than permissive. They would let content get blocked even if it was completely appropriate. The community filter approach allows for probably more of a liberal way of going about it where content that's inappropriate might slip through, but you don't run that risk of appropriate content not getting through. But Rob has seen filtering technology improve since 2001, and he thinks there are ways that libraries can implement filters in ways that don't restrict content and also make libraries eligible for E-rate funding. He recommends community-based filters. The community-based filter is more of an inclusive filter where you make a conscious choice of what to block versus allowing the computer to, to just exclude based on what it's seeing. There's one that I, I recommend the most, and it's OpenDNS. OpenDNS used to be an independent organization. It's now owned by Cisco. That should be known. But they have an enterprise-grade service called Umbrella that uses community-based categories that sites are voted into. And then you can choose from those 50-some-odd categories as to what you want to block and not block. One of the things libraries would want to seriously consider when implementing a filter that uses categories is think about it in terms of compliance with existing law. You would only want to block sites that maybe encourage or enable illegal activity. And maybe that's what you've determined is inappropriate. And therefore, you're not really doing anything more than you would normally have to do anyway. And Rob also points out that libraries have never really been neutral information access points. Libraries need to come to grips with the reality of what they are. 
every library filters. Every library that's ever existed until now has always filtered, and they've done so through their collection development policies. Since they choose what goes on the shelf, and by extension what doesn't go on the shelf, they have been filtering all along. This is no different. This is just choosing what's inappropriate and appropriate for use in the library and implementing that, except in this case it's with technology. While libraries have always filtered, this raises some interesting questions about who is being represented and included in creating these filtering structures. But we'll dive into that in more depth in a later episode. So at this point in the interview, I thought I had Rob's views about filtering figured out. That he thought there are pretty good filters out there now, and he took this kind of practical view that getting the E-rate funding is worth it, so you might as well implement the filter. But then he kind of threw me a curveball when we started talking about tools that let you browse the internet anonymously. Namely, the Tor Browser. Tor Browser is a wonderful little invention, isn't it? Tor Browser actually, by its very nature, is immune to all filters. And so what I would encourage libraries to do is if you have to implement this filtering technology, also offer Tor Browser. There's nothing that says you can't. It's a privacy tool. It's not a filter bypass tool. It just has that wonderful side effect that it is immune to the filters. One of the biggest concerns... I find with applying a filter is that SEPA does allow for adults engaged in legitimate research to bypass the filter, except you have to ask to have that filter bypassed. By asking in itself, you're putting in a form of censorship. Somebody who's engaged in research that is of a very personal nature or something that they might not be willing to open up to a stranger like a librarian at a desk about, having to ask for a code to bypass might be too restrictive for them, and they might then feel not free to do that research. And that's very anti-library in a way. So if you could implement Tor Browser and then post publicly, if you are an adult engaged in a legitimate research activity, feel free to use the Tor Browser. It has access to unfiltered internet. The end. I am very excited to announce that as of last month, our board approved not only the implementation of a Tor relay to support the Tor community, but that they authorized us to install Tor browser on every computer we manage. So all 1,000 computers throughout Westchester Library System will be getting Tor browser installed over the next future months. So basically, privacy tools and filters can live side by side. And by having Tor browser available on every computer, People can bypass the filters, but their privacy is also enhanced in other important ways. Filters keep logs on what they block. Well, in a way, that's a log of what sites people are going to. So you should let them know how often you're going to purge that or if you're going to keep it at all. Things like PC reservation, which has gotten very popular in the last 10 years. How often are the logs purged? For example, in Westchester Library System, we try to purge those records daily so that nobody has a record of who went to a computer and when and what computer they used. People should feel free to come to a library, use a computer, and walk away knowing that there's not a long-term record of their use of that computer, because then it could be tied to any other activity that might be traced down the line. Tor Browser is something that libraries should seriously consider as part of inclusion in their privacy policy. Are you providing tools for patrons to manage their privacy? If so, what are they and how do they access them? The biggest way to take control of your privacy is to stay informed. And part of that is on the library, they should feel obligated to let their patrons know what tools are available to them to mitigate their privacy risks. One way that libraries can ensure that your screen is private is by installing something called a privacy screen. One of our member libraries actually has privacy screens on all of their computers because they are anti-filtering, 
They have patrons that do come in and use the internet for the viewing of adult material, and they don't want that to infringe upon the rights of others. And so they've put these privacy screens on, and you really can't see what's going on on the screens as you walk past, which is amazing. It's just a flat film that gets taped over the screen. You can only view it straight on. It pretty much grays out from any other angle, whether it be up, down, left, right, any other periphery view. That way, whether you're doing a children's ebook or you're viewing an adult site, nobody's going to know. There's no shame factor involved, and there shouldn't be. The screens are quite expensive. They're about $100. They cost almost as much as the screen themselves. But it allows for true freedom. Privacy screens, filters, filters based off algorithms versus community-based filters. Technology has changed a lot, and it will only continue to do so. We are just on the cusp of the information age. Everybody thinks we're, we're so deep and, and, and maybe even over the hump. I, I disagree. We're just starting out on an information renaissance and what is going to be online in the next 10 and 20 years is going to be so big that I don't even think we can truly conceptualize it until it happens. It'll be critical for libraries to keep up. No matter how much things change, I feel confident in saying that there will always be pornography and it will continue to push the boundaries of what we do or don't, can or can't, should or shouldn't do with our media. And on that note, time to wrap this episode up. Thanks to all you library listeners. Stay tuned on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts for the next episode. Until next time.